Uh, good morning and happy new year. Uh, my name is Zach and uh, I am on staff here. And today is uh, the day that across the country we start on our overly ambitious goals that we will have probably completely abandoned uh, in just about six weeks. Um, I, was, uh, I was reading an article a couple of days ago that was talking about the most common uh, New Year's resolutions for 2023 and saw things uh, that you'd probably expect like eat healthier and you know, budget better and exercise more regularly, just a, a lot of common things that you might expect to see on a list of New Year's resolutions. Uh, but then I get down towards the bottom of the page um, and see this one. My goal for 2023 is to accomplish the goals of 2022, which I should have done in 2021 because I promised them in 2020 and planned them in 2019. Um, and I, I saw that and I said, yep, that's the one for me uh, this year. Um, we, uh, it's, it's easy to dunk on New Year's resolutions, uh, but whether you're the type of person that makes them or not, the, the fact that they exist just points uh, to this truth, that, that times of transition have a way of waking us up to reality and causing us to live in light of that reality. And uh, the passage that we're going to look on, uh, the, in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, uh, Moses, the author, is going to find himself in a massive transition as he's leading the, the people of Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness and up to the promised land. And as he's in that kind of big transition in the life of Israel's history, this is kind of what he gets woken up to, that our lives are a lot shorter than we think they are. And therefore, it is very, very important that we make them count. And I, I'm, I'm confident that that's something that every single person in this room wants uh, to do this morning, right? We, we want to make our lives count. Like none of us wants to get to the end and, and look back and say, man, I, I wasted it or, or I wish that I had given it more. So Psalm 90 uh, is where we're going to be this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and grab them and open there. And uh, we're going to uh, walk through the text um, and not take a, a ton of time, because I don't know if you've noticed, but we've got some kids in here this morning. Um, but uh, what I believe that, that as we walk through the text of Psalm 90, that these are kind of the two main things that God wants to do this morning. The first is to open our eyes to the reality that, man, our time on this earth is limited. And then secondly, to show us how we can get to the end of our lives and look back and say, I didn't waste my life, but I made it count. So Psalm 90, uh, verse one, let's go ahead and jump in. It says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. So by saying that God is a, is a dwelling place, uh, Moses is starting this Psalm with a picture of God's character, of what God is like. And that word uh, dwelling place is only mentioned uh, or is only used about 18 times in the Old Testament. And it, and it means something of God as a refuge or a habitation, or you could even say a den. Um, when I was uh, growing up, I, I loved to go to my grandparents' house. Um, in their house, they had uh, two kind of main areas to gather. They had a, f a, a front room and they had a family room. 
So uh, I know those sound, kind of sound like the same thing. Um, the, the front room was obviously at the front of the house, um, and it was, a, it was a formal place. It was a, a place for entertaining. So it had uh, the nice fixtures, you know, the professional photographs just hung very nicely on the wall, and it had a hideous teal couch that for some reason uh, must have been in back then. But the, the front room was formal. Um, but the family room, or the den, on the other hand, now that, that was a different story. See, the, the den, that wasn't for entertaining guests, but that was for enjoying family. It was, a, it was a place to laugh, to cry, to grieve, to rejoice, and to, man, to fellowship. And, and by starting this psalm, by saying that God is a dwelling place, Moses is saying that that's a, man, that's a picture of what a relationship with God is like. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations, a place of comfort and safety and security. Verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Just think about that, that last part of that verse for a second. It's, it's powerful. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Not you have been God or you will be God, but outside the bounds of time and space, you are God eternally. That, that, uh, that by saying that, that from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, what Moses is, is showing us there is a, another kind of picture of God's character, and it's primarily these two things, that God is both eternal and unchanging. God is eternal and unchanging, and that's significant for us here this morning because things change, right? We, we recognize that. Throughout our lives, things change, and sometimes things change for the better, uh, but things also change for the worse, and the reality is that we have little to no control over which direction the things in our lives can change, and that can produce anxiety in us sometimes. All right, 2023, it, it could bring a, a change in health, it, it could bring a, a change in your job or your relationship status for the better or for the worse. That's just the reality, right? But, but instead of being anxious about the myriad of potential changes that lie just on the horizon, man, as Christians, we can have confidence and peace because of this reality that God is in control and that God does not change. Listen to this verse or this uh, quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said it this way. God is unchanging in his essence. He is unchanging in his attributes. He is unchanging in his plans. He is unchanging in his promises. He is unchanging in his threatenings. And this is good. He is unchanging in the objects of his love. Man, that's so comforting. From everlasting to everlasting, God is God. And so in these first two verses, there's a, a, just a, a ton there about the good, like the, the character of God that we see. And we could spend a, a ton of time unpacking it, uh, but let's just suffice it to summarize it this way, that, man, God is the eternal and unchanging dwelling place for his people. And uh, what we're going to see in the next couple of verses is that when we get up close and personal with, man, just the eternal goodness of God, we can't help but contrast a little bit and see just how drastically different that we are. Verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, 
They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, but in the evening it fades and withers. Right, so in this chunk of verses, uh, Moses is using like four different metaphors. He's, he says a, a watch in the night, like the, the sweeping away of a flood, the, the transience of a dream, or like a Middle Eastern grass that sprouts up in the morning, but by midday or evening, it's gone. He's using those four different pictures to all kind of communicate this uh, just simple reality, and it's this, that in the scope of eternity, our lives are unbelievably short. In the scope of eternity, our lives are here today and gone tomorrow. Um, I'm confident that none of you rolled out of bed this morning and came here, or rolled out of bed and thought, man, I I really hope that we talk about the brevity of life at church today. Um, Right? It's it's sort of an unpleasant thing to think about, um, but I I do think it's something that we can all relate with. Um, You've probably heard the phrase before, the days seem long, but the years seem short, right? Um, well, I have never felt that, uh, just, just related and resonated with that more acutely uh, than I did last week. So I don't know if um, you have ever flown uh, to the Midwest um, during Christmas time with multiple young kids, uh, multiple flight delays, lost luggage, and lost car seats. Um, but uh, let me just tell you, them days feel long, Okay. Um, I was joking with Meredith, there, there, it's like the, the, that kind of day where you just, you get to the end of the day and you look at your spouse and like the best thing that you can say about the day is, babe, our kids survived and our marriage survived. Let's go to sleep and start again tomorrow. Um, right, it, it's just true. Like whether it's raising kids or it's a, man, a hard class in college or a stressful season at work, man, some di- sometimes the, the days of our lives can just feel so long. But on the other hand, right, we can just quickly, we can see an old picture of ourselves or a picture of our kids, man, from years ago. And it's like, man, that that seems like it was just yesterday. Like where in the world has all of the time gone? Guys, it's just true, right, that our lives move a lot quicker than we think they do. And what I know to be true from talking to people older than me, my parents and my grandparents, is that the older that you get, man, the quicker the, the years just seem to fly by. And so in these verses, man, Moses wants us to feel that in the scope of eternity, our lives are just a a blip on the radar. They're here today and gone tomorrow. And it's important to see that that Moses is lamenting here, right? He's grieving. He's not just, you know, bashing the fact that, oh, we're transient people. He's, he's lamenting it and grieving the fact that, man, uh, like, uh, like sand, like the, the, the harder we want to grab onto life and enjoy it and make it last, like the quicker it just seems to slip right through our fingers. So in the next couple of verses, Moses is going to, his lament is going to continue um, and things are going to get a, a little bit more intense here. Verse seven, for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. 
So it's here that uh, some context is important. It's believed that Moses is writing this psalm uh, at some point during Israel's wilderness wilderness wandering that's kind of mentioned in the book of Numbers, right? So uh, Israel was disobedient to God and they were subject to spend 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, which was, man, just uh, probably one of the clearest pictures um, in in the Old Testament, but even in the entire Bible of God's wrath against sin. You see, for years, Moses had had a a front row seat to God's just repeated and unmerited kindness toward Israel. And Israel's just, man, repeated rejection of God as their, man, as their provider and their shepherd and their Lord. And in these verses, right, what Moses is doing is he's reflecting and kind of lamenting the reason that our lives are so short. So we saw in those last verses, man, that our lives are short, they're transient. And in these verses, what Moses is doing is showing us the reason that they are so temporary. And here's kind of what we see that the reason is, that we have sinned and incited the wrath of God. So that's an unpopular thing to talk about. And the wrath of God can be, man, just a a difficult thing. And sometimes it can be hard uh, to understand. But I think this quote uh, from Pastor Josh Buis summarizes it really well. He says this, God's wrath is not a reckless rage, an uncontrollable anger, a senseless fury, or an unjust vengeance. The wrath of God is a precise and controlled response to the belittling of his holiness. Um, so I, I love this quote for a couple of reasons. One is that it just, it dispels a lot of the common misconceptions about what's, what God's wrath is. Um, but the second reason is that, man, that, that phrase, belittling of his holiness, I think is a, a good, just an accurate description of what happens when we sin against a holy God. You see, to belittle something means to, to trivialize it or to make it seem, you know, unimportant. Some of you may have been in situations where you can say that somebody was belittling you or something about you, and it doesn't feel good, right? It, it's not a good thing. And, and what we see, man, spanning from Genesis 3, like all the way up, even to our present day today, is that through eating the fruit, through worshiping and creating idols, through, man, pursuing instant gratification for living for ourselves, man, we have trifled with the holiness of God, acting like he doesn't exist and we can just do whatever it is that we want. Man, and what we see here is that God's righteous and just response to the belittling of that holiness is death, right? It's spiritual death and separation from him and it's an eventual literal and physical death, right? And and this, man, it's just hard and it's heavy stuff. And what we see in the next verse, in verse 11, is it just kind of leads Moses to just kind of throw his hands up and hopelessly, slay, hopelessly say, or verse 11, who, who considers the power of your anger and, and your wrath according to the fear of you? It's sort of like a rhetorical question just to say, what are we to do, God? Like nobody actually lives like this is a reality of life. You see, from where Moses stood as he was writing this psalm, he, he saw no end in sight. You know, he, he, sure, he had glimpses of God, experiences with God. He had promises of deliverance, but all he sees, right, from his vantage point is just this vicious cycle, and it's that, and Israel just keeps on sinning, and, and the wrath of God just keeps on flowing, and lives just keep on ending. But you see, the difference is that we stand in a different place now, today, than Moses stood as he was writing this psalm. 
You see, we stand on the other side of other side of the cross and see Jesus Christ, the solution to both our sin and the wrath of God. Look at First uh, John four ten with me. It says this: In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So that, that word propitiation that John uses there, it, it literally means a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. And on the cross, Jesus Christ absorbed the wrath of God that was due to us for our sins in our place. Right? And, and as Paul would later on say in Romans 5, just as sin and death came into the world through Adam, man, so justification and redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation and resurrection life come into the world through Jesus Christ. Yes, we have sinned, man, probably more than we can ever know. We, we have incited the wrath of God. Life as a response is short and death is coming. But church, the good news of the gospel is that because of what Jesus has done, death won't have the last word. Amen. Man, because of what Jesus has done, as the song says that we sometimes sing, man, death is just a doorway into resurrection life. And, and, and that's not all, right? That's not all. We don't just kind of uh, get in the back seat and consign to just coast uh, for the rest of our lives until we hit that day. But man, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can make the remainder of, our, of the years that we have on this earth count towards the things of eternal significance, right? We could say it this way as kind of the old King James version says of Ephesians 5 that because we've been redeemed, we can redeem the time where we can buy it back and make it count towards the things of eternal significance, and as we walk through the last couple of verses of this passage, we're going to see just a couple of ways that we can do that practically. So look at verse 12 with me. So teach us, Moses says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So in my uh, last class that I took before graduating from seminary, um, I, I had to write a paper uh, on Jonathan Edwards. Um, he is one of the remar most remarkable people that I have ever looked at, and he, the dude was just a, a machine. I mean, it's just unbelievable as you look at him and, uh, you know, study his life. And just listen to this list. There's just a couple of things from his life. He pastored his first church at 18 years old. He would typically rise at about four or five in the morning and spend 13 hours in his study. And that's just unbelievable. You have no life, basically, at that point. Um, he was a leader in one of the greatest revivals in church history, the First Great Awakening, and uh, among other things, he was a preacher, a missionary, an author of more than 73 books, and an expert in metaphysics. You know, I, I, when you spend 13 hours in your study a day, you better be an expert in something like metaphysics, I guess. Um, right? But you might say that Jonathan Edwards was, was a man, by looking at that, was a man who made his life count. And as I studied him and kind of wrote this paper... Um, it became clear that man, one of the, the reasons that he was able to squeeze like so much juice out of the lemon of his life was because of this prayer that he would regularly and sometimes daily pray. And it was this, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. You see, what Edwards meant by that was that he wanted to view every single day and every, even every task within his day through the, the lens of what would matter in the scope of eternity, right? And that perspective, right, is what led him to ultimately, man, make the most of his life, to, to be one of the most productive and influential people that has ever lived. 
And what we kind of learn from looking at Jonathan Edwards and what we learn from looking at what Moses says here in verse 12, man, is that if we want the wisdom right, needed to make our lives count towards the things of eternal significance. We don't even, we don't just need that perspective. We need to maintain that perspective throughout the remainder of our lives. But, but how do we do that, right? Uh, it, it can be easy to kind of get jolted into that kind of perspective, you know, at the turn of a year, at the birth of a child, the move to a city or the loss of a loved one, it can kind of put things into perspective for us. But how do we like carry that down and just to the everyday mundane stuff of life. Um, this, is, this is a true story. So uh, over Christmas, um, while we were in St. Louis last week, I was talking to one of Meredith's relatives and she was asking me what I was preaching on this morning. And I start to tell her, you know, Psalm 90, life is short, make it count, all that, you know, good stuff. And um, she starts to, to tell me about this app that her friend, that she, I guess this person that she knows developed. And essentially the, the point of the app is to five times a day, just send you a notification to your phone to remind you basically that your time on earth is limited. I um, mean, it's just either a story or a quote just popping up right there on the phone. Hey, you don't have a ton of time, so do something about it. Just something like that. And I kid you not, the title of the app, you can fact check me and look it up in your app store if you don't believe me, is We Croak. So there's your uh, sermon application for today is go home and download the We Croak app. Um, but no, in all seriousness, I think Moses uh, in verse 12 and even Jonathan Edwards, right, the story that we looked at, they both show us a, a better way and it could not be more simple, a way to, man, bring this, and main, bring this perspective down and maintain it throughout the days of our lives. And it's this, man, it's just to simply pray and ask God for it every day. Man, Every morning, pray your own version of this prayer. Lord, help me to live today like I'm gonna see you tomorrow. Man, like write that on a sticky note and just put it on the inside of your Bible, right? Write something like that and put it somewhere on your desk at work. Man, go before the Lord and ask him to open your eyes, man, to the fact that you don't have as much time as you think you do with your spouse or with your kids or with your coworkers or with your neighbors and help him, like ask him to let that lead you to a sense of gospel urgency in the places and spaces that the Lord has you in your life. Man, our God is a, a good God. He's a good father, the Bible says, who loves to give good things to his children and answer their prayers. And I'm confident that when we go to him day after day, he will teach us to number our days and grant us the perspective and help us maintain it um, so that we can make our short lives count toward the things of eternal significance. Uh, verse 13, moving on. It says, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen e evil. So when the people of Israel were wandering uh, through the wilderness, they craved food, right? It sounds like a pretty reasonable thing for a group of people to do as they're walking through the desert. Um, so every morning in his kindness, God provided for the people of Israel by sending them manna. It was kind of like bread. Um, what Moses had seen though, was that time and time again, God's gracious provision for the people of Israel was never enough for them, right? They, they wanted meat or they wanted vegetables from Egypt. And it's here that the, the people of Israel, man, clearly illustrate something that I think we can oftentimes experience. And it's this, that, man, nothing 
uh, no things of this world can fully and finally satisfy the desires of our souls. Not even man created things, not even God's gracious provision. Nothing on this world, no, no created thing can fully and finally satisfy the desires of our souls, but only God himself can do that. And these verses, right, they show us that if we want to make our lives count, we must abide in the one thing that can truly, man, satisfy our souls and empower our hands for fruitful service to the Lord. And that thing is the steadfast love of God. Jesus in John 15, 9, he encourages us, encourages us in the same direction by saying, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love, remain in me, abide in my steadfast, never-ending love. Um, the reason, guys, that this is so important is because probably more than we realize, what we kind of fill our minds with in the morning is going to set their trajectory of our entire day. You've probably experienced this. It's definitely true for me. When I wake up and go straight to looking at work emails, right, the trajectory of my day is going to be busyness and it's going to be performance. When I start my day by scrolling through sports, excuse me, the trajectory of my day is going to be a sense of distraction and it's going to be, you know, a temptation to be lazy. And when I start my day with looking at the news or looking at what's happening in the world, the trajectory of my day can be, man, just stress and anxiety. But what does verse 14 say? It says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love so that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. You see, when we, make, when we wake up and saturate our minds, man, with the reality that God loves us even in spite of us, man, the trajectory of our day is joy and gladness. It's not some flippant happiness, right? But it's a deep-seated joy that even amongst a day that can be hard and, man, difficult, God loves us and we have an eternal home with him. And that's, man, that's what we need. Isn't that what we need to make our lives count is a deep-rooted joy and a, a sense of satisfaction in the Lord that can carry us through all of the things that we find in our days. There are probably a thousand ways that we could apply this, right, how to, how to abide in Jesus, how to abide in his love. Um, but I just want to, you know, kind of touch on and give you probably the most simple and foundational one, and it's this, to just spend time alone with God in the morning. Um, there are probably people here today in this room who are all over the map when it, when it comes to uh, consistency and quality of a time alone with God in the morning or a quiet time. Um, you may get one day a week for 10 minutes a day, or you may get seven days a week uh, for an hour plus. You might be here this morning and be a new mom who is like struggling to find even just a couple of minutes or even the energy to just get in front of your Bible and read and spend time with the Lord. Or you might be a new believer who just can't get enough. You're just spending hours on hours on end or anywhere really in between that spectrum. But really, no matter where you are with, you know, time alone with God um, here this morning, I want to encourage you not with, you know, just a, a, a Bible reading plan or some sort of habit that's going to be a quick fix to just get you down there. But what I want to do is encourage you to press in and press on by hopefully giving you a small picture of how big and awesome our God is. Look at uh, Psalm 145 verse 3 with me. It says, actually, I don't know if we have the slide. Hear it. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. So here's what that verse is saying, that you could read through the Bible five times a year for the next 50 years and at the end of all of it, there would still be 
oceans of God's greatness to be discovered and meditated on and satisfy your soul. Right, when we go to God morning after morning, we can capture new glimpses of his greatness to satisfy our souls. Man, his greatness is absolutely unsearchable and his steadfast love is inexhaustible. So no matter where you're at this morning, man, press in to the Lord and press on and spending time with him in the morning, like in the morning. It's so, right, just as a, man, just as an athlete, like, trains before a competition and a, a instrument is tuned before the performance. So Christians, it's so important before the day begins and before we fill our minds with other things to remember who God is and what he's done for us in the gospel because it's then and it's only then that we're gonna have the joy, the gladness and really the endurance and empowerment that we need to make our lives count for the things of eternal significance. Last thing, or last couple of verses here, uh, verses 16 and 17. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So there are two kinds of work that are going on in these verses. In verse 16, right, we see that Moses is praying for God's work. And then in verse 17, he says, establish our work or the work of our hands. And here's kind of the point that Moses is making, that, man, establishing happens when those two things aren't separate, but when they overlap. Or we could say it uh, this way. Our lives will have lasting significance when we make God's work our primary work. You see, at the end of the day, church, we really only have two options with the life that we've been given on this earth. We can spend it for ourselves or we can invest it in the kingdom of God. Where am I at? You guys see this penny right here? Y'all didn't know I was a prop preacher. You see this, this penny right here? Guys, this is the point of Psalm 90 right here, that our lives are but measly pennies in the economy of God. Valuable, yes, but extremely short. And every single one of us is tempted to waste it by spending it on ourselves. Right? But the thing that we have to remember is that man, even a, a penny, something as small as a penny, when it's invested, not spent, but invested in something that is as powerful and valuable and reliable as the kingdom of God can return dividends on dividends of impact for God's glory and the good of others for generations to come. So let me ask you this morning, man, where do you need to stop spending and start investing? Where do you need to stop spending and start investing? We could say it another way. Where are you pursuing, and with your life, a sense of ease and personal comfort where you should be pursuing and prioritizing the glory of God and the good of other people? Maybe it's in your workplace or uh, your neighborhood. Man, choosing a sense of personal comfort over stepping out and, man, trying to share the gospel with those who God has put around you. Um, maybe it's in your marriage or your parenting, choosing to, man, at the end of the day, get your kids in the bed as quickly as possible and turn on the TV rather than, man, simply choosing to engage and check in and even worship together. Uh, maybe it's in your singleness, right? Using your availability to chill and travel rather than to serve, to love, and to give. Right? Maybe it's in your retirement, choosing your freedom and your newfound availability to coast rather to, than to invest your wisdom and experience in the next generation. Right? Those are, man, generalized, and I don't know what exactly the Holy Spirit 
is pressing on you when we think about this idea. But guys, I do know this, that if we get to the end of our lives and hear those coveted words from our God, well done, good and faithful servant, it's not going to be because we chose to seek with our lives a sense of personal ease and comfort. Right, we are gonna hear those precious words from our God. Well done, good and faithful servant, because we've seen Jesus as the most precious thing in the world and we've chosen to give everything for him. It uh, reminds me of a story of uh, C.T. Studd. So C.T. Um, grew up in a small town in England in the mid-1800s in a, a very wealthy family. Um, he was... By the time he was 16, uh, he was considered to be one of the best cricket players in England. I know nobody plays cricket anymore, at least that we know of. Um, But back then, it was a really big sport. He's a really big deal. He basically had everything, all the fame and everything that he could ever want. But in 1884, uh, his brother, George, came down with a serious illness, and it kind of caused CT, a man that had had anything that he'd ever want, to really question the deeper things and the meanings and the purpose uh, of his life. And according to one of his biographers, this is what he said. What is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes to face eternity? I saw that cricket would not last, and honor would not last, and nothing in this world would last, but instead it was worth living for the world to come. You see, C.T. Studd was a man who had everything he ever wanted and grew up spending, but man, the gospel of Jesus Christ led him to in turn invest and stop spending. So in 1885, just a year after that, he left his wealth and his promising career as a cricket player and sailed to Shanghai where he would be one of the first missionaries to ever go to China. And you know what happened as a result of his investment? God established the work of his hands. You see, today, in large part because of him and others that went with him, China is considered to be one of the places in the world that Christianity is growing the fastest with over 100 million Christians. And towards the end of his life, C.T. Studd wrote a a famous poem, and uh, this is the tagline. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Church, our lives are here today and gone tomorrow. But man, by God's grace and the power of the spirit, they can count towards the things of eternal significance. For many of us, it's not gonna mean moving overseas as missionary, though for some it may, but instead it's gonna mean by choosing daily, man, to sit with Jesus, to see him as the most precious thing that there truly is and choosing to, in every area that we go throughout our day, to invest rather than to spend for his glory and the good of other people.